Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are in the third and final section of this book. In chapter 6 through 19, John is describing a final seven-year period of judgment here on earth known as the Great Tribulation. Now, this is a time that Jesus described as such as has not been since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall be, with signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, on the earth, the stress of nations, the seas and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which will come upon the earth. We mentioned in one of our previous studies that based on the numbers we've looked at thus far in the book of Revelation, it's possible that close to half of the earth's population is dead at this point. I mean, it's really difficult to fathom. The good news is the church, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins, we're not going to be here, right? We get airlifted, rescued off the planet, taken to heaven in this glorious event known as the rapture of the church because this great tribulation, this is a time of wrath and judgment that is being poured out on the earth, and Jesus already paid that wrath, or he already took the punishment for that wrath for us. Now, Quickly again, when it comes to the construction of this book, the events that we read of in the book of Revelation aren't necessarily happening in a sequential order. There are portions of this book, particularly in chapters 6 through 19, that are stacked on top of each other, kind of like a series of overlays. And we also talked about how John, as he writes this, it's almost like he's swapping back and forth between different camera angles. So in certain portions, it's like he's using a wide angle lens to provide an overview, but then he'll stop and he'll rewind and he'll take up the account again, this time filling in new details or told from a slightly different perspective. We said that this is very typical of the Hebrew writing style of John's day. And I mentioned that this morning because chapter 11 is another example of this. John once again switches to a zoom lens and focuses in on two specific characters from the Great Tribulation. We call them the two witnesses. But before we get to them, we're going to take a moment here and just look at the first two opening verses of chapter 11, because we find here another what we'll call interpretive crossroads of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me do my best to get all that out before we dig in. <clears throat> okay, verse 1. John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood and said to me, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But then the angel tells John something interesting. In verse 2, he says, but leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. These two verses are yet another example of a New Testament passage that is very closely linked to an Old Testament passage. Because in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 43, there is another temple that there is being measured extensively. And I will say this, this kind of becomes a study unto itself, and we really don't have time to properly dissect it this morning. But when you start reading those chapters in Ezekiel, you'll find that the temple measured there is best understood as the temple of the millennium, and the temple of Revelation chapter 11 seems to be before the temple of Ezekiel. In other words, 
Revelation chapter 11 is describing a temple that will be built in Jerusalem during the days of the Great Tribulation before Jesus comes back and the millennium gets ushered in. This is really important in understanding because the prophet Daniel, Jesus, Paul the Apostle, they all speak of an act that they refer to as the abomination of desolation, wherein the Antichrist, a coming political world leader, who, by the way, let's remember, initially appears on the scene as the ultimate good guy. He is a bringer of peace. He'll enter into a treaty with the nation of Israel, but he eventually turns on them, and we're told that he puts an end to the daily sacrifices that are being offered in a rebuilt Jewish temple. Paul says that he sits in the temple as God and demands that the world worship him as God. And Daniel, Jesus, and Paul all point to this abomination of desolation as being a pivotal sign of God's judgment upon the earth. But in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, there has to be a literal temple that is rebuilt in Jerusalem, which clearly there isn't to this day. But there is today what's referred to as the Temple Institute in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, where a group of Jews are absolutely dedicated to the rebuilding of a Jewish temple. You can go online, you can research all about this. They are working tirelessly to try and replicate everything they can for a new temple, even down to specific pots and pans. I mean, there are people who are being trained for the priesthood, learning how to conduct animal sacrifices. One leader of the Faithful of the Temple Mount, which is an organization behind this, said, we will continue our struggle until the Israeli flag is flying from the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Now, if you're not aware of the fighting that's going on in the Middle East, um, I don't know where you've been for the past several decades, but somebody might hear this and think, Kevin, how are they ever going to rebuild a Jewish temple when the Temple Mount right now is largely under Islamic influence? That's a very good question. But this is where we take note of this specific detail in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 11. By the way, what we're about to read is one of the main differences between the temple that's measured in Ezekiel and the temple that's measured here in Revelation chapter 11. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel is instructed very specifically to include the outer court in the measurements of the temple. But here, John is told to leave out the court, which is outside the temple, do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And there is debate over whether or not where the Dome of the Rock mosque sits is actually on the site of the original Jewish temple. There are several researchers and archaeologists who have come out with studies about this. Charles Wilson, Lean Rittmeyer, Joseph Patrick, Asher Kaufman, and there's actually <clears throat> some compelling evidence that suggests the temple may have actually stood to the north of the location of where the Dome of the Rock Shrine is today, 
and that if the temple were to be rebuilt at its old place, the Dome of the Rock shrine would actually land in the outer courts. I don't know if you can tell that from that picture over there. But again, you can go online, you can research all about this. But listen, if that's the case, then that would explain why the angel tells John, leave out the outer court, which is outside the temple, because it's been given to the Gentiles. I think this is interesting too. Bible commentator John Corson writes, during the Six-Day War of 1967, the Israelis launched a preemptive strike against the Arabs and recaptured the city of Jerusalem. General Moshe Dayan could have easily booted the Muslims off the Temple Mount, but he didn't. In a gesture he himself never fully explained, he let them retain control of the 35-acre parcel. Thus, the outer court of the Temple remains given to the Gentiles to this day. But it makes you wonder, okay, with all of the fighting that's taking place between Jews and Muslims in that part of the world over the past several decades and how no one, excuse me, how no one's ever been able to come up with a workable solution, it makes you wonder if a leader stepped in and said, I know how the Jews and the Muslims can worship on the Temple Mount together. The world would absolutely marvel at that person. Perhaps that's the treaty. Perhaps that's the covenant that the Antichrist enters into with the nation of Israel. Now, we don't know, but it's just kind of interesting to speculate about. Notice the last phrase of verse 2 says, These Gentiles will tread the holy city, meaning Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months. 42 months is exactly half of seven years. Daniel 9 tells us in the middle of a final week, which is a period of seven years, the Antichrist will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomina- on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate. So this is a reference to the second half of the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation, when the Antichrist, and we talked all about this in a previous study, suffers a mortal wound, is resurrected, and Satan at that point possesses him bodily, and he ultimately reveals his true nature and begins to slaughter all those in the world who will not worship him. That really sets up what we want to talk about this morning for the two witnesses. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 6, and then I'm going to pause and make some application. Excuse me. Shouldn't have had that slab of bacon before I got him to teach. (laughs) John says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Verse six says, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. For starters, all of the language used in Revelation chapter 11 to refer to the two witnesses appears in the masculine gender in the Greek language. 
So there is no reason for us to think of the two witnesses as anything other than two men. Talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. Towards the end of verse 3, notice what the specific time frame is of the ministry of the two witnesses. We read that it's 1,260 days. 1,260 days is the exact same period of time as 42 months, which is what we just read in verse 2. So again, it would seem that the ministry of these two witnesses seems to fall in the latter half of the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. Verse 4 refers to the two witnesses as the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you'll immediately recognize this. This is another clear allusion to something that we read. Zechariah chapter 4. The prophet writes of an angel who wakened him out of his sleep, and he said to me, what do you see? Zechariah says, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. The angel said to me, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And this is often the case with Bible prophecy, where there's an immediate application. And so in its immediate application... This is referring to two men of the Old Testament, a governor of Judah named Zerubbabel, and then a high priest who returned to Jerusalem with him named Joshua. But the secondary application of these verses in Zechariah 4 is here in Revelation chapter 11. This morning, the angel says of the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. John Walvoord writes, Just as the two witnesses of Zerubbabel and Joshua were raised up to be lampstands or witnesses for God and were empowered by oil representing the power of the Holy Spirit, so the two witnesses of Revelation 11 will likewise execute their prophetic office. Verse 3 says power is given to these two witnesses. Verse 5 and 6 describes that power. John says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Verse 6 says, they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but one of the things that's really interesting to take note of when we look into the Bible regarding the last days is how much of a supernatural element there will be to it. In other words, we live in a day and age where one of the main opponents of the Christian faith is viewed as the scientific community. And we'll see personalities like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or the late Christopher Hitchens. But the Bible makes it clear that during the Great Tribulation, the world will be witnessed to and influenced by powerful spiritual supernatural elements. And I just want you to think about how unlikely that seems in today's culture. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, the coming of the lawless one, which is a reference to the Antichrist, will be with all power, signs, and lying wonders. In Revelation chapter 13, we read of the false prophet, who's a religious counterpart to the political Antichrist. John says, He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth 
by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. That's how he convinces the world to worship the Antichrist. Notice that John specifically highlights a miracle performed by the false prophet. He says he even makes fire come down from heaven. Why is that important? Because it specifically answers the miracles performed by the two witnesses. Do you remember how during the Exodus, Moses and Aaron were given power to perform certain miracles? But one of the really interesting details about that account is how the magicians of Pharaoh could, up to a point, essentially mimic that same power. And what it did was it minimized the impact of the signs performed by Moses and Aaron. The same thing will happen during the Great Tribulation. You'll have these two witnesses on the scene. They'll be given power to perform great signs. And then almost immediately, the false prophet steps into their wake, able to perform almost the exact same thing. And it will diminish the ministry of the two witnesses. By the way, speaking of Moses, there is no end to people speculating about the identity of the two witnesses. Because of that phrase in verse 6, where we read, they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues, many people have speculated that Moses is one of the two witnesses. Similarly, when we read they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls on the earth in the days of their prophecy, people have said, well, one of the two witnesses must be Elijah, because that's clearly what he did in his earthly ministry. By the way, that theory is reinforced by the fact that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration as a testimony. Another theory, going back to verse 3, where we read, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Some people have said that the two witnesses are Zerubbabel and Joshua from Zechariah chapter 4. Others have suggested that Enoch is one of the two witnesses. You remember that the Bible tells us that Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. So Enoch never died. And what people will do is they'll point to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that says, it is appointed for man to die once, and then after this, the judgment. And they'll say, well, because Enoch never died, and because Elijah never died, clearly they must be the two witnesses who come back to the earth so that they can experience a physical death and then be resurrected and taken to heaven. By the way, I do think it's interesting that the extra-biblical gospel of Nicodemus, which we recognize is not part of the canon of Scripture, uh, but it is interesting that it names Enoch and Elijah as the two witnesses. Another theory is that the two witnesses are just two unnamed men, probably out of the 144,000 that we read about in chapter 7, who were specifically anointed with power by the Holy Spirit to prophesy and minister during this time. And it may not be that these two witnesses are any one of these Old Testament personalities specifically, but perhaps they come in the spirit and power of Elijah, kind of the way John the Baptist did that Jesus talks about. Whoever they are, verse 7 says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this is the Antichrist, we talked about this in a previous study, We read that he makes war against them, 
overcomes them and kills them. Verse 8 says, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So clearly this is a reference to Jerusalem. And yet spiritually, we're told that this city is called Sodom and Egypt. David Guzik points out that the term great city is often applied to Babylon, the headquarters of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 16, 17, 18, several references. He says, if during the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, Jerusalem's leadership is in league with the Antichrist, it's easy to see how these titles apply. Any city in love with the Antichrist or entering a covenant with him could be called Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. Verse 9 says, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their bodies to be put into graves, which is really gruesome when you think about it. And then those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. This is the only time during the Great Tribulation that you read of people rejoicing. They're rejoicing because the two witnesses are dead. And and how did the two witnesses torment the people of the earth? Check this out. They spoke the truth. There are so many verses that come to mind right now. The main one for me that leaps to mind is Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, when Paul says, have I now become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You know, you can really tell where you stand in your relationship with somebody when you tell them the truth. That's the litmus test for whether or not you really have a relationship with that person. But 2 Thessalonians says that during this time, God's going to send the people of the earth strong delusion because they didn't receive the love of the truth, that they would all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Romans 1 repeats the idea of God giving people over to uncleanness and vile passions and a debased mind. Why? Because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and instead worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And the people of the earth, they turn this into a global holiday, right? I mean, they're partying on the streets In Jerusalem, they're snapping selfies with the dead bodies of the two witnesses lying on the streets. And it's easy in the world that we live in with Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. And you can see how video footage of this would just go viral and be picked up by every major news outlet. But on day three of Dead Prophet Watch, here live on the streets of Jerusalem, We read in verse 11 how the breath of life from God enters them and they will stand on their feet and great fear falls on those who seize them. I'm sure it did, right? I mean, just look, this is one of those moments you need to insert yourself into scripture. Don't just kind of read this and go, wrap it up, Kev. Where's the dad jokes? Dead bodies on the street for three days and the world's rejoicing. The entire world has seen these dead bodies on the street for three days. Imagine you got a dead body out in front of your house for three days and you're stepping over it. I guess we don't really get mail in the mailbox anymore, but let's say you're stepping over it to take trash out, right? 
And then three days later, that dead body stands up. How would you react? That's what's going to happen. And these two dead bodies, can you imagine me and one of the dead or one of the two witnesses just kind of standing up? And you're like, well, here we go, right? And they hear a loud voice from heaven, verse 12 says, saying, come up here. And they ascend to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. I do think it's interesting that the exact same phrase, these two witnesses here calling them to heaven is the same phrase that John heard at the beginning of chapter four when he said, the voice which I heard was like a trumpet saying, come up here. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven. Essentially what I think you see in verses 11 and 12 of this chapter is the two witnesses being resurrected and raptured and taken to heaven, which is exactly the destiny of every believer in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That a day is coming when we're going to shuffle off this mortal body and we will be transformed and transported to heaven in the blink of an eye. It's amazing. What's the result of their resurrection and rapture? Verse 13 says, In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So it seems that there is at least on a limited capacity or on a limited scale, a degree of revival or repentance that breaks out as the response to this. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But the chapter concludes with what seems to be another statement of culmination of the events of the Great Tribulation. John says in verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then he describes it for us, starting in verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I can't read that and not think about the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. Cue it up for me. You ever heard a live performance of the Hallelujah Chorus? Absolutely amazing. You got to hear it at some point in your life. You got to keep it going. Oh, never. If you go hear the a live performance of the Messiah, you got to stand up when they start to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Verse 16 says, the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. Verse 18, the nations were angry. So here's how we know this is not a global revival because the nations are angry. Your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. Why do we conclude that these verses seem to describe a culmination or an end? of the great tribulation. Well, there's the reference to heaven being opened in verse 17. There's the declaration that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord in verse 15. We read in verse 18 that your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that the time to reward your servants, the prophets, 
that you should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then there's the striking similarity between this passage and what we read about the sixth seal in chapter 6 and what we read about the seventh bowl in chapter 16. And you'll see, if you study those passages, all kinds of overlapping descriptions. Earthquakes, hail, thunderings, lightnings, mountains and islands being removed, stars falling, skies receding, the lamb and the temple being revealed from heaven, a loud voice declaring, it is done. In fact, compare these verses with what we read in chapter 19. In chapter 19, by the way, we know that this is happening at the end of the Great Tribulation as Jesus is returning to the earth. John says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne. A voice came from heaven saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him. And I heard, John says, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So very, very similar. Now, To close things out, let me circle back around for a moment, and I want to make a couple of applications to us men, dads, husbands. Like with the two witnesses, what our kids need, and notice I say our kids, I include myself in this, this is what I took away as I'm studying this to prepare to teach this on Father's Day. Our kids need dads who are constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Like these two trees, these two lampstands that are connected to these two trees. Paul the Apostle talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not a one and done experience. The idea in the Greek language is be being filled with the Spirit of God. Like with the two witnesses, our kids need dads who will live a life demonstrating a reliance upon the power of God. Like with the two witnesses, our kids need dads who will boldly proclaim the truth of God's word, even in the midst of a society that is vehemently opposed to it. Like with the two witnesses, our kids need dads who will lay down their own lives, if need be, for the sake of following the Lord. So look, as a dad, our job is to disciple our kids. That may mean you give up your hobby. It may mean you turn off the TV so you can spend time reading the Bible to your kids. See, that's laying down your life. A lot of times we scratch our heads and we say, what does it mean to lay down your life? It means you give up what you want to do for the sake of what benefits someone else. We got one shot to parent our kids, to disciple our kids and bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. Like with the two witnesses, our kids need to see dads who take a stand and who are raised up to live in the power of the resurrection. These men are called witnesses, but verse 7 says they finish their testimony. You see, a witness is something that we are, 
but a testimony is what our life provides. Revelation 12, where we're going to be next week, says that we overcome the working of Satan in our life by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Fellow dads, you know what our kids need? Like with the two witnesses, our kids need dads who will finish their testimony. Our kids don't need dads who will poop out along the way in following Jesus. They need a dad who finishes the race, who crosses the finish line, who, like Paul the Apostle says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have run with endurance the race that is set before me. Now, the good news is Jesus has promised every single one of us, yes, dads, but moms too, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, neighbors, employees, employers. He says, you will, check this out, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will, what, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Yuba City, Marysville, Roseville, Gridley, Sacramento, your home, your job, your school, your neighborhood, to the end of the earth. Can I just say the world needs more than two witnesses? Amen? So, Father, we dedicate ourselves this morning to seeking your face, to being filled with your spirit, and to being raised up to speak your truth and to live a life that passionately pursues you above all else. We love you. We thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would bless and equip every father represented here today, every grandfather, every stepfather, every father-to-be, or for those of us who are discipling other young men behind us, we pray for wisdom and the empowering of your spirit. We love you, God. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.